0: Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Titus chapter 3, very short passage today, just three verses, which will give us a fun passage next week. All right, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, I would remind you this is God's Word, it was written with you in mind because He is a wise and infinitely knowledgeable God. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable, worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, And then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us, not just in your Word, but in the preaching of your Word. We are frail creatures. And so we ask that your spirit would be strong and that he would speak and that even he would listen in our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. I love those passages of the Bible or ideas of the Bible or sometimes just straight up incorrect perceptions of the Bible that are often circulated Sometimes presented by non Christians as a, a proof of why Christianity is not the truth or the right way, sometimes used by Christians in the most spectacular and almost comedic fashions, right? The I can do all things through Christ. No, wait, how do we say it? I can do all things through a verse out of context. Right? When we take an idea in the scriptures and misuse it and abuse it. One of those that we've here with great regularity, that's not in any way biblical, is the idea that you shouldn't judge. Christians aren't allowed to judge, which is spectacularly unbiblical. The Bible never says that we're not allowed to judge as Christians. It doesn't mean that we have to, you know, the second we convert to Christianity, we have to turn our brains off and let other people do whatever they want, and we can't be critical thinkers. In fact, actually, that's really tragically wrong. Christianity should constantly stimulate the mind. It should be uh, provoking deeper and richer thoughts constantly. No, in fact, actually, really what the Bible talks about with judgment is much more of dealing with the heart of the person who judges. (laughs) Are we being harsher to others than we are to ourselves? Are we looking at their flaws uh, with a, a, you know, a telescope Or a magnifying glass, making them really big, and we are we taking ours and making them kind of, you know, covered over and as hidden as possible? It deals with the heart, but not just the heart. It deals with the content, too, and this is actually, I think, uh, one of the more difficult things for Christians to learn is that it's so easy for us to see what we perceive as the failings of another person, uh, perceive what they are. It's so easy for us to look around and say, well, that person's stupid. I see what their faults are. It's so easy for us to see the ways in which that person upsets us and then to find them wanting, to find them coming up short. It's so easy for us to do all of this, but really for us to kind of honestly hide the fact, lie to ourselves… That the ultimate standard that we're using to evaluate others is really just our preferences. It's really just uh, our preferences kind of wrapped up in kind of Bible-ish sounding language to make it sound cleaner and neater and tidier and more holy when in reality, it's just your likes and your dislikes being applied unfairly and uncharitably toward others. That's one of the reasons why I love the running kind of digs that I take at cat owners, because immediately it kind of puts our hackles up to say that cats are lesser than dogs, and everybody knows they are. We see it's one of those areas where automatically you're talking about the, the thing that lives in my house. How dare you? And our preferences suddenly become so easily a source of judgment. Or if somebody were to come in and say that Pepsi is better than Coke. I mean, no one says that, but if somebody were to say that, you know, know your, your hackles would get up. You'd feel it deep in your soul. That's just not right. It's just not true. How dare you? How dare you? Titus is a book written to a pastor trying to organize a church, a church that's young and growing. It's a fledgling little church that's growing in a part of the world uh, that is filled with kind of, uh, well, immorality as much of the Roman world was. It's not like they were known for their piety. But the kind of weird, unique little community living on an island that was known for its kind of, we would call them today, libertarian thoughts, They hated the government. They were constantly kind of halfway in a state of rebellion, got invaded a couple of times because of it, just kind of constantly on the fringes of acceptable society because they liked to be free. They're the kind of people that most of us probably would have enjoyed uh, until they went crazy and then we wouldn't like them anymore and the church is attempting to grow there. And so you have Paul sending Titus to come in and to be the pastor, and it's intriguing when you really think about this book from the perspective of what does the young church need to grow? What does the young church need to grow? And the answers are answers that I think many of us probably wouldn't have, have thought if we were writing God's Word, which is why we didn't write God's Word. God wrote it. He starts with Officers, you need officers for the church to grow. You need godly elders to lead the way. You need holy men who can teach the word. Oh, I'm probably not where I would have started, particularly for kind of an anti-authoritarian community, a, a libertarian community. I don't want anybody to govern me. I'm the ungovernable. And interestingly, what's the pastor supposed to do? Come in and create governance. Don't tread on me. No, absolutely. That's what God does. He does tread on you. You're not the boss. He is. You're not the one who dictates the terms of the relationship. He is. You're not the one in charge. He is. And then for this pastor and for these elders to then begin kind of going after false teaching that's kind of flourishing in their midst. I love thinking about kind of the letters that were written to these churches because you think about like probably most of these churches were substantially smaller than this one, It's just such a funny thing to think about, that their problems were so serious that God addressed them specifically with His Word and then did it in a way that it would apply to us. And what's this church struggling with? This church is struggling because they have begun to divorce good thinking from good living. Orthodoxy from orthopraxy. They've separated, in some fashion, right belief from right action. And as a result, you have this book, which is, I think, probably the single most practical book in the New Testament, maybe perhaps after James. It's just command after command after command after command after command with this one kind of beautiful gospel um, portrait there, Uh, at the end of chapter 2, until we get here to the kind of closing instructions. And now you have Paul instructing this new pastor how specifically to deal with at least one specific gentleman, probably a couple in their midst. And do you have Paul, the great church planter, one of the, probably, I think, the smartest man alive at the time, certainly the most educated man in the world, do you have him saying, "Well, well, just don't judge. just don't judge. How how dare you? Don't judge. Or do you have him saying, well, look, you just got to be nice and everybody will be fine? Or do you have him saying, well, look, hey, they're entitled to their opinion. Or do you have him saying, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, they can believe whatever they want. Well, interestingly, you have some of those ideas kind of for those outside the church, The unbeliever outside the church can believe what the unbeliever wishes. They will get consequences for that, which is why we want them to come in. But for those inside the church, this idea of of the church being, in some sense, a judgment free zone is really a a false thing. It's it's really a misnomer. We're to judge charitably. We're to judge the way that we would want to be judged ourselves. We, we, we're to judge in a way that is uh, overly kind with each other. <laughs> right. Jesus actually looked through for this sermon all of the times that he talks about judgment. And almost all of them is dealing with your heart. The measure that you use to judge others is the measure that you're going to be judged with. Things like that. But so much of it is dealing with our, our, our souls. But when it comes to the church, You can't just say what you want to say and live the way you want to live and still be inside because Christians are a very specifically defined thing. This is something that I think is really hard uh, for us to understand and appreciate in the South, American South, because, you know, many of us, if you grew up in this part of the country, everybody here says they're a Christian, or at least they were when you're growing up may have no idea what the Bible teaches. They may not even own the Bible. I remember talking to somebody um, this calendar year, earlier this calendar year, who said they were a Christian, but when I said, well, do you know the gospel? They're like, I've never heard that word. What is the gospel? All right, well, let's talk about that. This is my favorite conversation. I love to tell you what the gospel is. Let's talk about that. Um, Funny enough, 20 minutes later, I really want that. That sounds really good. Yeah, friend, it does. Your church should have told you about it 20 years ago. But in a culture that kind of everyone has said, at least for portions of it, that they're a Christian, it's, it's very hard to kind of distinguish who's in and who's out. As a pastor, it's been really kind of interesting for me because one of the weird parts of being a pastor is that when people find out you're a minister, they act totally weird um, they stop being like normal people and act really strange. Uh, they either try to confess all of their sins to me, which I'm like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Or they suddenly realize they've been swearing for the last 15 minutes and they get really red and then they leave, which is like, I've heard those words before. Um, we haven't done a good job of kind of clearly delineating who's in and who's out. What a Christian looks like, what a Christian believes, what a Christian acts like versus those that aren't, those that are different, those that are pretenders. That's one of the things I've had to figure out as a pastor interacting with people is like everybody pretends to be a good person in front of me. It makes evangelism incredibly difficult. And I've been a Christian all my life. I figured out my favorite question for this. Don't tell anyone. It's a great question. I ask them what their pastor's last name is. That's usually my primary indicator of a person's spiritual condition when I'm doing evangelism. What's your pastor's last name? Because interestingly, if they don't know his last name, odds are they haven't been in the building enough times to even talk to him. They have no idea who he is, and if they haven't been in the building enough times to know his last name, they probably aren't in church, and therefore they probably don't know their Bibles. It gives me an opportunity to evangelize. It's a great question. Really tricky. Really tricky. Looks simple on the surface. Oh, who's your pastor? Oh, Pastor Chris, I love Pastor. Oh, what's his last name? No idea. There it is. What am I doing with that? is trying to help myself kind of discern the categories of of difference of inside and outside. Because in the South, the American South particularly, until fairly recently, those things have been so synonymous, it's made it extremely difficult to be a part of the Lord's church or to be outside the Lord's church when everybody claims the same and everything looks the same. When people inside the church act the same way as those outside the church, and those outside the church act the same way as those inside the church, and there's no noticeable difference. Now, that's not what's happening in Crete. Right In Crete, you have a culture that is degenerate. You have a culture that is uh, overtly rebellious against God and against the empire and the emperor. You have a, a culture that is intentionally sensual and driven by pleasure. It's very much kind of where ours is and is headed. And so part of what Paul instructs the church to do is to be very careful about drawing those lines as to who's in and who's out to make it clear And they're maybe not the exact lines that we would expect them to be. We're going to look at two and then a couple of applications just briefly. First thing is the danger, right, the the application here, of making mountains out of molehills. I mean, some of you know that illustration. Some of you don't. You didn't grow up in a world where moles lived in your yard. I did. I understand what those are. It's one of our famous stories about my sister. She came in when she was, you know, very, very young, very little, and uh, came in crying to my mother, and was like, mom, 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 the mole bit me, which mom asked the right question, right? What mole? It's a good question. My sister's like, this one, you know, and it's dangling from her finger from where it had chomped down on the end of her finger. I don't know how she found it in the yard. Right, molehill's a little hill, tiny little one, right? It's maybe that big, an inch tall, just a little kind of bump in the yard. But making a mountain out of a molehill is to take that tiny little bump and to expand it and inflate it and to increase it until it becomes the very Mount Everest itself. The tiniest little thing is expanded until it becomes this expansive, comprehensive, immeasurably large thing. Which is what's taking place in verse 9. But avoid. And he's going to give us a list of things that are to be avoided. Foolish controversies. Now, these are the kind of controversies that would exist in a church, and again, libertarians, we all have those friends, we know what they can be like, that would argue over something that can't be known, that can't be resolved, but is a really fun thing to argue about. Argument for argument's sake, it's just foolishness, it's stupid, it's pointless, it can't be resolved. Now, rather than just, you know, the, the goofing around that friends will have with each other, we have a good argument and laugh at it and move on. And that was just the whole purpose of it, to be silly. You know, the what would you rather do kind of questions or things like that. What's happened in this part of the church is that uh, these controversies have begun to get traction. And so you have people that are beginning to take sides, beginning to choose sides, and beginning to kind of define themselves by their stance on something of third or fourth or fifth or sixth tier importance, or perhaps even something that cannot be defined at all. It's becoming their identity. They're saying, I am this kind of person, and you're not, and you're on the wrong side. You need to change. I'm a small dog person, you're a big dog or a cat person, y'all need to change, you're in the wrong. The little living mops that clean your floor when they walk, they're the best. The tiny little things that you can kick by accident right? Something stupid and foolish, but has become definitive about who they are. The genealogies, this is one that um, some in here might relate to. Sorry if I step on your toes, but not really that sorry at all, actually. Uh, what the Jews had begun to do in the church is they had begun to, really, there's kind of two arguments being made next to the genealogies. Uh, they were taking kind of this mystical family tree lineage that the Jewish rabbis had constructed outside of the Old Testament and were trying to argue that, like, some of the family. Family lines were kind of more powerful, more significant, or whatever else, and that I am more important because I'm connected to it. And that's really kind of that second application point is that I am more important because I am descended from this person. I'm more important because I'm a descendant of Joan of Arc or whoever else, like whatever. We see this where people are trying to kind of identify to find value, to find meaning, to find merit based on their relationship to someone else. That's why if you're ever on the internet, Facebook, that godforsaken place, Facebook, you have all of the different quizzes of like, which celebrity do you look like? Which Harry Potter character are you like? which you know, All of the different quizzes, that are all they're designed to do is to try to give you a sense of meaning and importance because you're connected to somebody bigger and better than you. And weirdly enough, none of them are like, are you a child of God? Yes, you're important! Man, that was a really simple quiz. I think I passed it, right? It's not hard at all. They were doing the same thing where they were taking these kind of Jewish genealogies and trying to argue that my family is better than your family, my dad can beat up your dad because I'm from a more important family than all of you losers, which you should have already known because I'm better than you, Dissensions, a synonym similarly happening here where they're just being argumentative and then even further pushing into this Jewish culture. Quarrels about the law where they're taking these Old Testament laws and kind of parsing out all of the various applications of them to the nth degree where they can argue minutia. This is the equivalent of like lawyers arguing for fun. And some of us, you remember this in sermons past, but you Remember, they don't have television in this time, obviously, and so one of the things that they, they did for fun is no different than we have today, right? Who's the lady who makes the most money on television in America? Judge Judy, that's right. Judge Judy is the most profitable woman in America right now, uh, and no, her contract is obscene how much money that woman makes. It's unbelievable because everybody likes a good argument, I mean, we love watching a good argument. And that's what they did back then, too, is that when they didn't, you know, have, when they did have their free time, they would just go to the square and watch their lawyers argue with each other. Now, they called them rhetoricians, and it was much more polished, but it was just, it was you go watch a good argument. It's the old Monty Python sketch. Would you like the five minutes or the full half hours? Just go watch an argument. And that had, Morphed into the church where they were arguing about anything and everything and trying to establish that I'm better than you on anything and everything. And the interesting thing is that out of all of this list, none of them matter. Not a single thing in this list actually is important. They're taking things that are not important or even sometimes just downright wrong, little molehills, and expanding them and inflating them and increasing them until they've become the size of Mount Everest itself. To take something that's not clearly defined in the Word of God and to make it a hill worth dying on, to make it of utmost importance. And friends, I'd love to say that the church, you know, we've never done this before, right? Ah, Christians are great. We, we never get this wrong. Like, No, wait, literally they were getting it wrong. That's why this was written, because they were messing up with this. And we've seen it throughout history so many times in the past where the church takes something that's, that's either just dead wrong or horribly unimportant and make it the hill that they're suddenly going to die on. So, one of the great examples of this with Galileo. Right? Galileo is beginning to work kind of modern astronomy, working, you've got Kepler's ideas and all those things in there, but is the one, Galileo is the one who begins to argue uh, for a heliocentric model of our, kind of our local area of space, instead of a geocentric, instead of having planet Earth be the center of everything, with everything kind of revolving around it, Galileo is the one who says, no, the sun is there, and everything revolves around the sun, and the Catholic Church lost their minds until they ended up having to kill him for it. And you're like, really, that's the thing? That's the hell that you're willing to die on. That's the thing that you're willing to execute a man for to say that the sun cannot be the center of the solar system. It has to be the earth. That's it. That's pretty special considering we really only have one point in space that we can measure it from, earth. We can't even see. There's not even two points to compare from, earth. That's all we have to measure from. And you're going to kill a man for that. Times where we take things that are, are small of lesser importance and expand them and increase them and explode them. And this is obviously, I think, a danger for us as well. While we'd love to pretend that we're not those that do that, pff, my priorities are perfect. I never have things out of whack. No, that, that, that's not true, actually. And it's important for us to be just completely honest to say that, look, the Scriptures specifically warn us about taking these lesser things that divide us from the body and letting them become definitive to our experience of the body. And, friends, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, as this church continues to grow in godliness and grow numerically, this will become increasingly a difficult thing. Because, and I'm going to be completely honest, most of us really stink at defining and differentiating our convictions from our preferences. And so when a thing is done a certain way, we get all bent out of shape and get angry and get bothered and get judgy McJudgerson at somebody else because we think they've done wrong and they're lesser for something that honestly is just preference. It's just preference. But we're blinded to that sometimes. To take our wants, our desires, our likes, our preferences and to let them become so large and dominant that when that gets transgressed, the world ends. Now, notice what I'm saying is, is I'm not saying convictions, right? Convictions are absolutely a big deal. Those are worth dying for if they're informed by the Bible. But if they're not informed by the Bible, friends, let's not cling to them so tightly. I mean, let's be flexible. I mean, I know I don't like that. I don't like being flexible. Some of you don't either. But maybe we ought to be able to, by God's mercy, Consider others as better than ourselves. To not take these tiny little things and let them become big things. Now, some of you, some of you, this is it's probably a sermon that's maybe six months too late or a year too late or two years too late. I don't know. I don't know your heart. But some of you are already sitting in here currently and you're already angry with somebody. You're either angry with somebody in this room or somebody in the other building, or somebody's homesick today, or maybe you're home with a, you're angry at a coworker or a family member or a thing like that, and you're bearing that anger with you. You carry it with you constantly. And friends, I would really, really encourage you to stop and consider how much of that anger is deserved over proper transgression. And how much of it is just a difference of preference? Maybe handled poorly, maybe handled sinfully, but just a difference in preference, right? Not letting the small things become the big things that end up splitting or killing a church. You think, well, that'll never happen to us. Well, that's the fastest way to make sure it does happen to us, actually, And so while you are the most wonderful group of people I've ever met and you love each other so much and you love me and my family so well, we got to be careful of this, that we don't let our preferences begin to dominate the show. Instead, let the Word of God do it. And that's actually the second danger that immediately kind of follows on the heels of this. Danger number one is to take this little minutia, a molehill, and, and turn it into a mountain. The second is to take a mountain and then turn it into a molehill. To take something that is big and is Mount Everest, that is the most important, and to reduce it to something that's secondary or small or unimportant or easily overlooked. All right, this is crazy. Uh, all right, so as for a person who stirs up division, so the person who's doing this, warn them once, warn them twice, and then kick them out. Why do you kick them out? You kick them out because you know that such a person is, and this is an amazing statement here, they are warped, they are sinful, and they are self-condemned. Wowzers. That that is not the language of like, oh, don't judge. (laughs) They're self-condemned. Their own actions are doing it to themselves. They've been handed a length of rope. They've tied the knot themselves. They've hung themselves. There's a sense in which even really we're not judging them because they've already judged themselves. They've already declared their own guilt. Because what's happening is, and remember this is kind of foundational to the idea of Titus, is that right theology, when believed correctly, produces right living. Those two things don't ever get separated, right theology and right living. You can't have right living without right theology. You shouldn't have right theology without right living. They go hand in hand. That's what the heart of the Christian is. It's a person who knows the Lord and has been changed by him. You believe in Christ, and his spirit comes in and transforms you. Orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right action, going hand in hand. What's happening here is Paul's warning them against those that don't have the right action. Right? The, the, the orthopraxy, the, the correct behavior is gone. And he's saying, look, you warn them, you, you, you correct them. And not just once, you do it several times. But there's a point where you have to end up saying, look, the reason why you have the wrong action is actually because you don't have the right heart. You don't know Jesus. Because you don't know Jesus, you don't have a spirit. The spirit's not working in you. You're not, you can't be in the church this way. The church is filled with those who have right belief and right action. Now, I'm going to be very clear. Is the church filled with perfect people? (laughs) No. No, not at all. It's a church filled with perfect theologians. No! I never said in Sunday school that I look forward when I get to heaven. I'm going to find out where I was wrong. It'll be great. But a congregant wisely said to me a couple weeks ago, there's a major difference between somebody who's trying hard and failing and somebody who's just given up. This is a distinction. That's what's marking the Christian is is a person who's trying by the Holy Spirit living within them. They're working to abide in Christ. They're working to to labor to grow in God's grace. And you know what? Praise God. They're gonna fail, we're gonna fail. But there's forgiveness and transformation. Instead, what's being warned here is a person who is actually taking the most important things and doing away with them. Taking those things that are the hills worth dying on and getting rid of them. Taking the things that are of utmost singular importance and to reduce them to nothing. Now, if you're a a historian of, well, church history, American history, world history, in any way, you can see, you know, this is a particular danger for Presbyterian churches. I, I, I'm not entirely sure why it is. I think it's true for all denominations, all forms of church government, but Presbyterianism particularly seems to be very open to this. That as you watch our history, we, we somehow so easily Get comfortable compromising on very major things. I mean, you can look at just Presbyterianism in this nation. Presbyterian church, our our theological forefathers was on the wrong side of the slavery and race conversation. 100% on the wrong side. It's indefensible, 100% wrong. We were on the wrong side of it. We had an opportunity to follow Girardot, one of the great pastors out of Charleston. Instead, we followed Benjamin Morgan Palmer, really in the wrong direction. It was a terrible thing. We were on the wrong side. As 1860s into the 1890s, when our worship practices as a denomination, particularly in the north coming out of New York City and such, became corrupted... the worship of the Presbyterian church degenerated, and they said, well, it's worth compromising on. we got to compromise. It'll be okay. And then as that eroded, it then worked backwards into our theology where then we then had to say, well, maybe we can compromise on some of the other things. Well, maybe miracles. Maybe the virgin birth. Maybe the inerrancy of Scripture. Maybe the resurrection. Maybe those are okay to compromise on. And then, even by 30s, 40s, 50s, in this denomination, even into the 70s, or what became this denomination, it had then worked into our actual practice, where we were turning a blind eye towards all forms of immorality. Our mother denomination, the one that we left the year before we left, the reason why we left, we ran our best slate of representatives to get the conservatives elected and uh, all of them lost. And the people that beat them, uh, one of them had made his reputation by taking church monies to start paying for abortions for the young girls in the church that had gotten pregnant. And one of the others actually had one of the page boys from the assembly in his hotel room and got him so drunk that the page boy had to go to the hospital for alcohol poisoning in the middle of the general assembly. Those were the two guys, two of the four that beat our guys and gals. Morality had eroded and dissolved. Now we look at our mother denomination, the PCUSA, and that's what it became after we left, after the merger. And they had to get rid of the rules regarding homosexuality because that's an area where they could compromise too. And for those, this is the most amazing thing. They didn't know how an easy way to write homosexuality into their rule book. So what they did is they just took out all laws regarding sexuality at all So, technically, in the PC USA currently, it does not matter what sort of sexual deviant you are, the church can't fire you for it because there are no rules against it. It's amazing how simple compromises work down into massive catastrophe. That's what you have kind of, kind of held in tandem with this is one is this temptation to take things that are unimportant and to make them of, of utmost importance. The other is this temptation to take things that are of utmost importance and to be willing to compromise on them a little bit and to think, I know it's not good, but at this one time it's okay. I mean, I know it's not good, but just this once. just this once. Well, it's, it's, it's to promote peace. I mean, don't you know that if, 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 I, if I keep this conviction, do you know what will happen? Do you know how angry they're going to be? Do you know how many people will leave the church? And so compromise. One compromise at a time. I think it's interesting that, really, in a conversation about judging, it's really a conversation about compromise. To say that my task as a Christian is to compromise with you on all the things that are not important, and compromise on none of the things that are. And your job with me is to compromise as much as you can on all the things that are not important, and none of the things that are. <clears throat> because the reality is, our hearts are prone toward flipping those two, to compromise on the wrong things and so destroy ourselves. And it's interesting, actually, that's that kind of middle part, that the Lord loves the church. And it's interesting that you would think in, in a conversation about this maybe you might think that I would be a little surprised what the solution is that he presents, which is church discipline. You warn him once, you warn him twice, and then you excommunicate him. You, you cut him out of the church. And there's multiple reasons why you do this. Church discipline is practiced both formally and informally. It, it's not a punitive thing. Right? Fancy word there that means it's not oriented as, like, as a punishment thing. It's not, you did the crime, you do the time. That's not how church discipline works, either formally or informally. That's not it at all. The way that church discipline is designed to work is this. We desire for people to know Christ. And when we are sufficiently convinced that either the theology or the practice is such that it puts them so out of step that we have to worry that they don't know Christ. We want you to know Christ. We want you to trust Christ. We want you to believe Christ. We want you to live in Him. Live out His word in obedience to Him. Live in the joy and the hope that He gives and that He brings. We want you to live compromising on all the things that are unimportant, staying strong in all the things that are, and so be filled with hope and change and growth and joy in the promises of God. And there are some of us, honestly, friends that learn the easy way, and it takes just a simple conversation and the tears flow. And there are some of us that, though mom told us not to touch the stove because it's hot... We walk up and look her in the eye and put our hand on it anyways and are determined to learn the hard way. You see, the purpose of church discipline is its not punitive. It's, it's not punishment-oriented. It's, it's restorative. It's to bring people back to Christ. But also what you see here in verse 10 is to take the unbeliever and to cut them out to draw a bit of a hard line to show who's in and who's out, to show that, no, look, transformation is important. Jesus didn't just save us from our sins. He saved us to obedience. He didn't just save us from living a stupid life and an evil life and a hateful life. He saved us to change, not perfection yet. That comes later after death but he saved us to change, to being made new in the image of Christ. Friends, my closing application is this. It's so easy for us to take these little problems and to make them into big problems and to spend all of our energy being distracted by those. To be occupied with the cause du jour, just whatever new thing is happening in the day and before of us. to be preoccupied with whatever's trending on Twitter or whatever else it is, to to be captured, to have our minds and our attention captured by whatever new celebrity scandal is taking place. And to miss the Mount Everest of the text, that we are God's people, made new in Christ Jesus, with good works set out for us to do, to be those creatures made new by the Spirit of God, transformed top to bottom, inside out, and to go live holy lives obeying Christ in joy and gladness, knowing we're going to fail and we're going to repent and we're going to come back to Him and one day we'll never have to repent again. For it's the danger for us all, I would say even the biggest danger is that we become so distracted that we lose that primary focus on Jesus. Some of you, you learn the easy way. And all it takes is a hard conversation and the tears follow. This is your hard conversation. This is the Spirit of God. I don't know who you are, which ones of you are in that category, but God does. And if the Spirit's calling you, friends, go home, have a cry. Confess your sins. Confess that your priorities are out of whack, that you've been pursuing secondary and lesser things, and return to Jesus. Jesus. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He welcomes prodigal children home and he forgives sins freely to you at great cost to him. Please don't learn the hard way. Not this time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us where we are even in passages as direct as this. Forgive us for wandering from Jesus, our first and greatest love. Would you please restore to us the joy of your salvation? Forgive us of our sin. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.